there's so much in there and in the other songs that we sang today that uh, I don't know if you find yourself wanting to be one of the heroes of the faith. Obviously, we know in, in Hebrews 11, there's the, the, the hall of faith, as they call it, you know, the, the, the famous stories of Scripture where um, people have just done amazing things for God. And we look back on that and we say, man, that is so encouraging. And I, I, I want to encourage you. There's, there's something, I'm going to be careful how I say this because it's Scripture, but I will say there's something also greatly encouraging and that is when we see people around us taking steps of faith, of recognizing that it's, it's not just uh, older people or biblical characters that are characterized by glorifying God through steps of faith. Uh, God desires each of us to take steps of faith. And I, I think as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, really beginning with the Beatitudes uh, in, in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, where we'll be studying today. Um, God, God is glorified when we take steps of faith. And, and over the last few weeks, we have been kind of hitting Christianity, where, as they say, where the rubber meets the road. It's the idea where our shoes meet the pavement, where our life is being lived day in and day out. And so, I mean, last week, I'm not going to rehearse it. Uh, we've done it enough over the last few weeks. Uh, but I'll say last week, we just talked about, about, about the idea of, of telling the truth. It doesn't really get much more basic than that, right? Um, but we, uh, and I will reference it in a little bit. But we are, we are in the study of the book of Matthew. And in this particular section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is just telling us like it is. And we're going to hear more today. We've already read it, so I, I, want, to, I want to kind of jump right in. But we're in Matthew 5, 38 through 42. And we're, we're once again going to be challenged with our daily walk and how we, how we live out our faith. And then we'll conclude with actually celebrating the Lord's Supper. And, and so that's just giving you a, a way of knowing what's coming up next. But we start off in, in verse 38. We already know from 17 through 20 that there is this righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees. And, and, it, and it worried the, uh, the disciples of his day. Well, those are the people we look up to. Like we look up to the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. These people were looking up to the scribes and Pharisees and saying, well, wait a minute, we thought they were our examples for the way we're supposed to live. And they were supposed to be the examples of the way we're supposed to live. Um, but they were failing to do so. And so Jesus set the bar in their minds, almost at a, at a height that would, would be, uh, uh, they couldn't get over. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. And we've been dealing with this righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, over the last few weeks. But he said, once again, you have heard it, it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth and a tooth. But I tell you, and this is the pattern we have seen uh, throughout this section, uh, the idea that they've heard something. Now, in other areas, it's, it's you've heard as it is written, and uh, this is talking about them actually hearing stuff from the scribes and Pharisees. All right? Also, 
from Scripture, and we'll look at that in a second. But he says, but I tell you. Here's this contrast. Once again, there's, I, I put a note. This is the fifth of six times that Jesus uses this way of explaining what kingdom righteousness looks like for Christians, what it looks like for us. He's saying, there is this thing that you've heard. Well, what have they heard? Well, they heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Don't be shy. Have you ever heard that? All right. I wanted to see lots of hands, all right? Uh, I, I, I won't ask the, the reverse question, because you may not have heard it. It's kind of an older saying. It's definitely in Scripture. Uh, but he, this, uh, he's, he's, he's putting something in the center of the table for everybody to look at, and he's saying, listen, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's true because it's actually uh, uh, taught in the Old Testament. So we're going to take a closer look at that and, uh, and the teaching of the Old Testament before we consider a little bit more in depth of what Jesus was trying to explain. So look at these three passages of Scripture. You'll see that the eye and eye and tooth or tooth are underlined in each one. And, and we're going to look at one in more depth. But I want you to understand, these are the three other times in, the, in Scripture, or in the Old Testament, I should say, where these words are used. And although the teaching is broader than just an eye and just a tooth, it is the, and in the way Jesus even phrases it, it is kind of like the summation of all. It's like one little saying that actually represents all the different possibilities. And, and so we're going to look at one in a little bit. I'm not going to read through each of these, but just so you know uh, but, uh, what's going on. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, and, and in the Latin, which is, again, the Bible was uh, written in the Old Testament. is Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, the New Testament, is that right? Hebrew, uh, New Testament is Greek and Aramaic. So maybe uh, Old Testament, Hebrew, New Testament, uh, uh, Greek and Aramaic. This lex talionis, right? That's the Latin. And it means uh, law of retaliation. This is, this is something that you may actually encounter in your uh, sociology classes and in college and maybe even in high school, but it's, it's the, uh, the idea sounds so much more official if it's in Latin, right? But it's a legal term, and, and, and what it's saying is the punishment should fit the crime. That's, that's a, a layman's term of understanding what lex talionis is, is that the punishment should fit the crime. We, we hear this, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and, but really what this is saying is the punishment should fit the crime. So walk with me one more step further as we go forward, right? Its purpose was actually to restrict over-punishment or over-favoritism. What do I mean by that? We see over-punishment in the sense that, okay, let's say uh, someone breaks my arm, right? Maliciously, they break my arm, and I retaliate by killing one of their family members. That is like over-punishment, right? <laughs> the person just broke my arm. Killing someone does not merit the breaking of an arm, right? That, that's over-punishment. But the other side of this is, is true. Over-favoritism would be the idea, well, yeah, but he's a, he or she is a, a favored person in, in the upper-class society. We, we're going to give them a slap on a wrist when it, when it deserves years in prison, so I think we're, we're, we can just look in the newspaper and, and relive some of the stories of our own nation and just say, listen, there's a need to restrict over-punishment, and there's also a need to restrict the over-favoritism that takes place. That's what Lex Talionis is all about. This law of retaliation 
is the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, justice is blind, people say. That's the idea. Justice applies to all levels of society. But we know that's not true. So as we, as we uh, summarize this, I just said its purpose was to restrict evil, restrict wrongdoing. That's why this, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth teaching in Scripture was given. It was a way of restricting evil. So each passage teaches basically how a community deals with wrongdoing. And, and that's, so this is a very important point as, as we're trying to understand the Old Testament context of, of what Jesus is bringing onto the table and putting on the table for everybody to look at. This is a community principle, not an individual principle. All right, let's look at it a little bit more clearly. All right, so here we see Deuteronomy 19, 15 uh, says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. All right, so we, when we see the word witness, and then we see it again by two or three, it's one is not sufficient, there must be two or three. We see this throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, we see that you're not just going to take one person's word for it. We sum that up as, as oh, it's, uh, he says, she says, right? It's like, it's like you know, there's no, there's no witness to it. So we have to have two or three that saw the same event to give us clarity on how to understand how to be judicious in our application of the law. And that's what we're dealing with here is uh, Moses, as he's writing Deuteronomy, all right, the second giving of the law. He, God is, it's, it's spirit uh, speech, right? It's God's word saying, listen, this is the way my law is to be followed. One witness isn't sufficient. You must have two or three. This is a court setting of sorts. It helps us identify. It's the idea. It's a legal setting, a court setting. It goes on to say, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy, notice this, they're going to stand before the Lord, before the priest, and the judges who serve in those days. Who Obviously, the Lord is always witness to whatever takes place. We've talked about that in the context of marriage. But now we're seeing, we're just saying in this day, in a legal setting, God knows, right? When you stand before the court, whether you pledge an oath or don't pledge an oath that we talked about last week, I will say that God knows what's in your heart, what's in your mind. But notice that these people are also this false witness. The two people in this controversy are standing before priests and judges. And, and so this is a community setting. This is not individual. This is how does community function well. And, and it's so these people come and they stand it goes on to say in verse 18, and the judges, that doesn't say God, it says the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, notice what happens. Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. If we're talking about being in a uh, healthy society, there are aspects of law. Remember, God says that the, the government doesn't, uh, doesn't wield the sword, right, without purpose. 
It's the idea that those who govern us have the ability to actually arrest us, give us a ticket, put us in jail, whatever the crime might be. But whatever the crime is, we would want the crime to fit the punishment. I shouldn't get three years in jail for a first-time jaywalking offense. That would not be the, 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 the sense of it. But here what we see is the way this community is working, there is this restrictive nature that is taking place. He's saying, listen, if a false witness comes up and he's proven to be false, give him the penalty he wanted on the other guy. That is, that is a restraining force. Someone's going to think twice before they, before they lie about, before they bear false witness against their neighbor. They're, they're going to say, oh, if, if they find me out, I'm going to end up with the one with the financial uh, burden or loss of life even. And so it was a way of restraining evil, right? It says, so you shall put away the evil from among you. There's the purpose. Uh, I think I can actually, uh, let's see, can I do that? Oh, it's green. You can't really see it, but it's right there. So you shall put away evil from among you. That was the purpose, is to have evil dealt with in the right way. Verse 20, and those who remain shall hear and fear. And hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Notice what's happening amongst these two people, uh, the false witness and the person being false witnessed against. What happens there actually impacts the community. And they're saying others, hereafter they, it's plural, it's not just those two, they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. Uh, I'm sorry, I, that's what I already read. It says you have, and then, so we go back into the Matthew passage, right? So we understand this uh, going back to Deuteronomy 19. We, we see uh, that's an example of what Jesus is putting center stage. He's saying there's a problem. There's a problem with the scribes and the Pharisees and what they're teaching. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, the law was given for the health of the community. It was its purpose for this, 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 this passage, this warning, is to restrict evil. But our judicial system has this same goal. The restriction of evil is the pursuit of justice, right? We, we, we would say here today, we do not want to see people go to prison wrongfully. Nor do we want to see the guilty go free. We would say, no, that's, that's like one of the standards of being an American citizen. We want justice to be done. And so our, I think our, our judicial system is based upon this lex talionis to a certain stent, extent that the, the punishment should fit the crime. But we know justice does not always prevail. The punishment does not always fit the crime in one way or another. And it frustrates us as it should. What we observe in our day is what Jesus is confronting in his. And in, this is where we're going to transition to what Jesus was trying to accomplish uh, in this text. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. We've already looked at it. But we're going to see that the Jewish leaders were leading others to practice personally what was intended to be practiced communally. They were 
basically erring in their application of the law, and it was almost as if it was a right. Someone hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. There was one, one uh, uh, deep theologian, uh, actually I'm sure he probably is, but the way he summed it, what, summed it up was, uh, you hurt me, I'm going to break your face, right? It's the idea of retaliation, revenge. It's like an, an eye for an eye. Well, he poked me in the eye. I have every right to go up and poke him in his. And that's the way it was understood. It, was, it had ceased to be this restriction of evil and became this thing it was never meant to be of I can get, re, I can get my retaliation up to this point. I can't go further, but I have my rights. And that's the way it was being taught. Now, before we get into the text, let me ask you, have you ever had those thoughts? You ever been wronged against? You ever been overcharged? Uh, you know, I'm th- trying to think of an, a, an illustration of that. First thing that comes to my mind, you ever overpaid for a hamburger? I feel like I'm overpaid all the time. The last time I got one, not the last time, but recently I got one. And I actually stopped, and before I took a bite, I looked at that thin little thing they called a burger, and I was like, and I looked at the price tag on the, I'm like, this isn't right. I ate it. And uh, I did not complain. But, you know, listen, we've all been wronged or seemingly been uh, uh, treated in a way or charged or overcharged. And, and listen, we desire something, don't we? Inside, we want to, we don't want right to be done. We want to be participants in the justice have you ever, okay, I'm going to ask for a raise of hands here because I'm raising mine, I'm guilty. Have you ever yelled at a, uh, what do they call those people on the phone? Uh, customer support or, or, or whatever? I mean, what are those people called? Those tele people. What is it? Telemarketers, right? I'm saying telemarketers or really the people that are really supposed to help you. Have you ever yelled at any of them? Okay. I want honesty. There's two things. Have you ever yelled? Raise your hand, because I'm guilty. Have you ever hung up on them? More hands. More hands. All right. Yeah, we feel justified, don't we? Oh, that'll show them. Ow. No, I'm just kidding. No, we, we want to participate in the justice. And Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We're talking about kingdom righteousness here. We're talking about kingdom righteousness. The Jewish leaders were leading others to practice personally what was intended to be uh, a, a communal thing, a, a, a judiciary thing. We need laws in our land. Jesus is not, remember, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. But, and so, therefore, the lex talionis, that idea, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it still stands in, 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 the, in, the, in the sense that it fulfills the law. But Jesus is saying, no, you've been doing it the wrong way. And, and so the goal of restricting evil had been turned into license for personal retaliation. And folks, listen, as much as I'm guilty and as you are and as much as we can laugh, this should not happen in our lives. This is an area of life where we are called to repent. This is, this is 
You could never, probably hardly ever call the person back and apologize because you'll get somebody else in some other uh, uh, office somewhere. But listen, if you could, you should, and I should. Personal retaliation, and that's, that's, that might be a harmless one, but what about someone that you're face-to-face with? What about someone that you've really, uh, you've hurt them in response to the perceived or genuine hurt you've received? We're not supposed to be characterized that way. This is not kingdom righteousness. Personal retaliation is not kingdom righteousness. Kingdom righteousness, as we learned last week, demands that citizens of the kingdom be truthful. And the way I tried to emphasize that was, it's not because, I mean, be truthful. Okay, no, be full of truth. Leave no room for lies. Be full of truth. And in light of that, as we go into our text today, I'm saying kingdom righteousness demands that citizens of the kingdom be full of grace. But I found that terminology wanting in terms of the, or lacking uh, in terms of the, the way for us to understand. I think we can understand to be full of truth means it's we're all in. We're always truthful. To be full of grace, what does that mean? Well, in the context here, this is the way I'm, it's to be empty of malice. Malice, this, the, the desire to inflict something upon someone else because of a perceived hurt. You're desiring because of whatever has happened to inflict malice upon someone. That's the heart desire that you have and that I have when we do those things. When you are insulted or injured, do not respond with malice. You're going to see this. When you're insulted and injured, we're going to talk about three different areas that we're... As we look into the text now, we're going to get into the actual text. This insulting or this injury that we perceive, whether it, the insulting is a hurt that is not physical, the, the injury is a physical one in the way I'm, I think it's meant to be understood here. When you are insulted or injured, do not respond with malice. Okay, just don't do it. Extend them grace with a willingness to receive additional insults and injuries. That's, that's the message of this next uh, verse or two, right? We are supposed to extend grace to others with a willingness, notice that, to receive additional insults and injuries. Uh, there was a story I read, actually I read it a couple times, uh, in the same author, I just reread it, cause, but it was, uh, there was a preacher, uh, and someone decided to test the, the resolve of this preacher with, uh, with this text. I'll just put the text up there, right? You've heard it said, uh, an, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. And let me just read it. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also, right? We've heard this. Turn the other cheek. I'm not going to skip that middle sentence, and we'll get back to it. But it, it, the story goes that somebody decide to, to test the resolve of the preacher. I'm asking, please don't do this. But the, the guy walked up and, and slapped the preacher across the face. And the preacher stood there. And he went up and slapped him on the other cheek. And the preacher stood there. So he slapped him a third time. And the preacher gave him an uppercut and knocked the guy out. And he said, the Bible doesn't say anything about a third slap. And so I, I think the guy was the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Uh, and I thought it was a fun story. But listen, as we talk about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, we have this craving for justice. 
And then we have this right in the same context. We see, turn the other cheek. And we're like, yeah, that's what Jesus did. And we find ourselves probably conflicted, betwixt. What, 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 am I supposed to desire justice or am I supposed to grant mercy? Jesus would say, grant mercy. But not just once and not just twice. Grant mercy. Period. There's a lot to be said about this, and there probably should be some questions going through your mind as to, as to what this means uh, for certain other situations. We're talking about here, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to, uh, not to resist an evil person. Uh, it could also be, uh, you might have, your translation might say, an evil action or just evil. Uh, it is a question mark, of, but I'm telling evil people conduct evil actions, and so uh, evil is probably sufficient, but it fleshes it out with this idea of person. So it's like, listen, don't resist an evil person. Certainly that's the one who does the slapping. It's the one who is doing wrong, wrongdoing. So I think it's interesting that the word evil is used because we talk about evil in this grand scheme of of. of uh, of murder and, and child molestation and all these wicked, horrible, heinous things. But he calls evil one person slapping another on the face. It's the spectrum of evil. The, the, the slap to the murder, it's all there. It's in the context of what we're dealing with. But he says, listen, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Is Jesus telling us that we should just allow people to walk all over us? No. He's not saying that. In the context, the, the religious rulers were, were applying what was communal truth to personal truth. And they're saying, you can't do that. You have no right to take vengeance in your own hands. Vengeance is the Lord's, right? We already know that from elsewhere in Scripture. They knew that. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So he's not saying just let people walk all over you. If someone uh, has, uh, is, is threatening you or your family, are you supposed to just take it? No, it's not saying that you can't protect those around you. Uh, that's why there are the civil courts, and that's why there are laws against harming others. That's why this Text was originally given, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, to restrict the evil and the wrongdoing. It was part of the law. So I want you to understand it. When he says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, he's talking about this, the interpersonal encounters that you're, that you're experiencing. It doesn't mean you can't go to court. It doesn't mean that you can't. And obviously there's more teaching in that way. But he's talking about the heart response and the physical response to different forms of wrongdoing. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to, to him also. Uh, there is a physical component of that. There is a belief that, because I'm not sure it's 100% true, but there's a belief that most people are right-handed. So to be smacked on the right cheek is a backhanded slap which, by the way, that's where the bones and bony knuckles are, right? That's going to be more injurious. But it was a sign of offense. It was a sign of insult. It was, a, it was recognized within the community. That's 
That's an insult. You've just been insulted. So it's both physical as well as uh, personal and in terms of your character. And so what are you supposed to do? I asked you to consider, what would you do if someone came up to you and slapped you? You would want to hit them back. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, don't resist the evil person. Not only are we supposed to maintain control, we're supposed to have the right heart while maintaining control. We're supposed to look upon these other people. Next week, we're going to talk about loving our enemy, right? So we're not there yet because it's a, a different section, but I, I will say it's, it's, it's kind of in here. We are to be those who are looking upon the person and we're supposed to be responding in a way that Jesus would respond. He goes on, kingdom righteousness, when you are sued or brought to court, do not respond with malice, right? Malice for kingdom righteousness, malice is taken off the table. We're not allowed to act maliciously. We are supposed to extend them grace with a willingness to give what they do not deserve. So this idea of of being willing to, to receive further insults and further injury That is something that calls us to a very high standard of personal living. To be insulted in front of your coworkers or your family. And I think in a great sense, it's the idea that wrongfully so, you are supposed to be willing to receive even more. And Jesus did that. Jesus received insults and injury he did not deserve. Here we see... Uh, when you're sued or brought to court, I think it's the same idea, right? We're supposed to extend grace. I, I, I do think there's a sense here that some people take the, that you're rightfully brought to court, other that you're wrongfully brought to court. Uh, and I, I think actually the, the lesson works either way. Extend them grace with a willingness to give what they do not deserve. They're coming. They want something from you. And in the words we're about to read, Jesus is saying, give them more than they're asking for. How does this go? He says, you've heard it said, tooth for a tooth, right? I'm sorry, jumping down to the last verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. The tunic would be my shirt. The cloak would be my jacket in this scenario, all right? My jacket... Under Roman law, you could not demand my jacket because it's not only a jacket, it's my warmth at night to sleep. Without my shirt or my jacket, I would be exposed to the elements and I would be in, in probably in danger of getting sick and even dying depending on what time of year it was. But they could, someone could sue you for your shirt. I think this is illustrative of Jesus. It's not, I don't know how common this was, but we know that clothes were valued throughout Scripture. And so he says, listen, if anybody wants to sue you to take away your tunic, rightfully or wrongfully, uh, the one illustration, it was rightfully. Like, you owed him the shirt. Give him the cloak, too. Well, that's going above and beyond. They don't deserve my coat. What do you mean? I have the right to keep this coat. You can't have my coat. And Jesus is trying to challenge us to get our eyes off ourselves and understand that there is, there is wisdom, there is grace, there's love, there's mercy. When someone, if someone 
is coming at you and they say, I'm going to sue you for this. And you're like, you know, you're right. You know, let me, let me give you this too. They're going to be like, what? There's no law that says you have to give me this. I know, I'm going I'm to get freely, willingly. I'm going to go above and beyond what is asked of me to demonstrate my commitment to God. And, 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 and he's saying, listen, you have to be willing to do this. It's a heart response to what is going on in your life. So I don't know how many of you might have been sued. Uh, thankfully, I've never been personally sued. I've been part of other stuff. But I'll say, listen, this calls us to a very high standard. Thirdly, he says, when you are oppressed, do not respond with malice. Extend them grace with a willingness to go beyond what is demanded. In this particular culture, in first century Rome, uh, a Roman soldier, and, and there's a little bit of, uh, I'll say, discrepancies uh, that I've read, but it is a common belief that uh, whether they had the right to or not, the practice was prevalent. Roman soldiers would say, I'm tired of carrying my equipment. They would conscript someone, kind of like Simon the Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus. Hey, you, carry this for Jesus, right? He's, he's falling down. He's taking up more time than he needs to. He's weak. Just get him up the hill, will you? And they pull him out, right? And, and he carries the cross. He was conscripted to do that. for. And, and, and a Roman soldier could ask anybody, uh, you know, I guess, but certainly Jews, to say, hey, listen, carry this for me, and they had the right to ask you to carry it for a mile, which is slightly less than our current mile. Um, it's uh, a mile is 5,280 feet, right? I think that's what we, we've learned, right? It's been memorized. This is like 4,000 and something, so it's a little bit less, but they, they would say, here, carry this, and they had no choice. They were oppressed to do so. Well, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying we need to be willing to go beyond what is demanded when we are oppressed. You have heard, I, I, I fit it all in one slide, and I'm kind of regretting I did that. Look to the bottom, verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. So the teaching is there. You know, you have this Old Testament teaching, which is accurate for a community setting, but not personal. But he goes, I'm telling you, don't resist the evil person. Three illustrations, a slap, being sued or being compelled to go a mile, carrying that. He's saying, listen, willingly, freely, go too. Well, why would I do that? That sounds dumb, doesn't it? And Jesus is saying, no, there is kingdom righteousness in light of what's going on here. You are being a witness that you are different and the God you serve is different. And your view is, not only am I going to carry this because of oppression, I'm going to carry this as an act of worship to my God, as an act of witness to my neighbor who just happens to be a Roman soldier. It's all saying, do not resist the evil person. But then we're finished with this verse, and it says, give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. This verse has haunted me as I think about a guy that asked me for money and I didn't give it to him. Uh, I, actually, I've done that many times. People ask me for money and I say, I will give you food. In this particular sentence, the guy said he was looking for a place to stay. He just honestly showed up at, at uh, Sam's Club one day. I'm pumping gas and he popped out of nowhere, freaked me out. I think I've told this story before. 
And he's like, hey, can you help me out? I need a place to stay. And it's pouring down rain. And I believed him. But I'm like, hey, dude, I'm not prepared to give you a place to stay. But listen, man, I'll, I'll go. Can we go sit down and have something to eat together? I don't need food. I need a place to stay. Right? And he disappeared. Right? And so give to him who asks. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. I kind of turned the guy away. So we have to be careful with how we apply this. I'm not saying I was right in that situation, but I'm not so sure I was wrong. Because I, I think about someone, and one illustration, again, was given. If, if someone is uh, in, in uh, danger of committing suicide, and, and you happen upon the scene, and you hold the pills in your hand that they were going to use for suicide, and, and, and they say, give it to me. Oh, give to him a mask. Oh, here you go. You're not going to do that. You're not going to do that because you know what's right. And so I think we have to temper what's, I mean, not temper Scripture. I'm saying understand Scripture doesn't mean exactly what we always think it means. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. It's the idea of extend grace wherever you can. Grace in the previous situation would be like, no, I'm holding on to this because of my love for you. It's by God's grace I'm here to intervene. But it's, it's the idea of we are to put others before ourselves. We are supposed to meet the needs that are, are bef- in, in front of us. It is not a license for people to walk over us, but it's also not a license for us to just kick people to the curb. Living in community is one thing, but the way, in, in the sense of rules and regulations, but living in community in another way is treating one another the way Christ would want us to treat one another, both in the church and outside the church. So when confronted with various forms of wrongdoing slash evil, confront it with grace like Jesus did. And I I don't know how to exactly apply that to your life other than the way I have up to this point. I'm saying there are areas of your life where you will be challenged to withhold what must be given. Right? Or or to take take matters into your own hands. And, And Jesus is saying, no, you must practice, we must practice kingdom righteousness. And that takes faith. And that takes prayer. And that takes discernment. That means that when we're walking through our daily activities, there's never an eye unto what is right and fair for me. You're always esteeming others better than yourselves. Resist evil by giving grace is really um, the summation, I think, of, of, of what this text is saying. And it's, that's what Jesus did. Think about that. That's what Jesus did. As we head into our celebration of the Lord's Supper, I, w- I want us to understand the Lord's table is a way for us to celebrate the grace of Jesus bestowed on those who do not deserve it. That's us. So as we come to the, to the Lord's table, the, the, as we come to communion, as we come to uh, the Lord's Supper and uh, the different ways it's, it's been communicated, and, and depending on what your church background is, one may resonate differently than another. When we consider what Christ did on our behalf, he paid the debt that we owed. Look at some of these texts of Scripture. Uh, well, I'm sorry, this one goes first. No one is worthy of salvation, but God is gracious to save. That's, that's the beauty of, of the gospel, right? None of us deserve it, but we receive it anyway. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. We live in a world that sees the gospel as foolish. Acts 2, 
uh, 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. And if we had been there in that time, we may have been part of the crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We don't deserve any of this. It's all a matter of grace. Hebrews 10.14, For by one, uh, one offering, Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, those who are being set apart for God. This is, this is, these are all gospel passages of Scripture conveying in one sense or another that Jesus did it all. We bring nothing to the table. John 17, 1 and 2, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. There's so much in this passage, but this is basically conveying it's all of Jesus. It's, it's a plan of God. We bring nothing to the table. So knowing that, as we normally do, I'm going to say let's take a pause for a moment and let's examine ourselves. Let's look at this text of Scripture. It says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There is purpose behind what we do. So we have, in our 21st century world, these little containers, and they contain a wafer as well as some grape juice. And uh, I don't think this is what they had in the first century. All right? Uh, we've talked about ways of making it a little bit more first century-ish, and we may get around to that at some point in time. Um, but I will say, nonetheless, these are symbols of Christ's body and blood. And he's saying, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. The purpose of examining ourselves is not to beat ourselves up and say that we're not worthy. You're not, and neither am I. That's what those verses just taught us. We're not worthy. But God extends his grace anyway. It says, examine yourself, so let him eat or uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Please, examine yourself. If there's sin, repent of it. Repent of it right now. If there is a, a, a wrong relationship, purpose to make that relationship, and when I say wrong relationship, that's broad. I would just say if, if there's a relationship that is not healthy, you need a purpose to get it right, and maybe you should not participate until you make that relationship right. That's the context of 1 Corinthians. But you know yourself, and you know your walk with the Lord, and I would ask you, examine yourself, just you and the Lord, and say, Lord, am I, am I able to participate in this in a worthy fashion? And if you find out the answer is no, would you just say, Lord, forgive me? Help me to overcome whatever it is that is an obstacle to my healthy relationship with you. And then in faith, participate in the bread and the juice. Let's pray. Father, as we examine ourselves, we are not called to examine others. Ourselves. We would like to think we know ourselves better than, than others, but that's not always true. We, we know that you know us better than anyone. So, Lord, I pray in this moment as we are examining ourselves, I'm praying, but we're all praying and we're all thinking. 
Lord, I pray that you'd bring to the surface that sin or those sins that we have committed that would say, I'm really not living with kingdom righteousness. I'm really not a clear testimony of the gospel since I know that my sin has been redeemed, but I'm still practicing sin. So, Father, for those sins that can be dealt with here and now, I pray that you would help those confess it and repent of it and then take of the supper. For those that are not sure, they're concerned that, no, they'd be a hypocrite if they participated and, and they think that they need to go and, and bring restoration to the sin that has been committed or, or, or to heal the relationship that has been hindered because of sin. Lord, I pray that you'd give those strengths to not participate in what is a clear demonstration of love and grace bestowed upon us, the unworthy. So, Father, may you be glorified in, in the way that each of us concludes this time of examination and prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment for himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Again, I take that to mean the body of the church, right? First Corinthians, a lot of dysfunction going on there. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. It talks about the seriousness of, of making sure we're doing this in the right way. But having examined and having prayed, let's partake of the Lord's Supper. This is, this is meant to be part of our community life. It is, not some, it is not mystical. It is not. In any sense of the matter, it's, there is nothing special about this bread or this juice. It's not mystical. It's metaphorical. It, it, it pictures what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Graciously, God gave us these symbols rather than seeing a bloody figure on a cross every time we do this. And he participated. There's so much involved in this, uh, and picture-wise. But I'll say, as we, as we go on to continue, he says, For Iris, Paul says to the Corinthians, these, these people who were all kinds of sin in, in the community, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was what? Betrayed. He was betrayed by someone who participated in the meal. That last supper. Left before it was over. But he participated, that very person, uh, Jesus washed his feet. Jesus loved that unworthy person. And we are unworthy and we do not deserve salvation. But he said, listen, for the Lord Jesus, on the same night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a powerful picture of what is taking place. Jesus is saying this before he is on the cross, but I think this became very real for his disciples in a matter of hours. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, which means they are intended to drink it over and over and over and over. Whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me. 
And he finishes with, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So we just did that. So we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And he is returning. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, uh, understand he came as a child. God became man, became incarnate. He lived a sinless life. Out of love and grace, he hung on that cross to pay for your sins and for mine. I've come to faith in him. Many in this room have. And because of that, we have forgiveness and we have a right standing before God. If you don't have that right standing before God, we'd invite you to come to faith in Jesus. And as we leave this place, I thought we'd just leave this thought. Let's proclaim Jesus as we live in gracious community with those who need him, right? We all need him, so we can talk about the community both in us, inside our walls as well as our community outside. If we learn nothing else, the, the, the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees is supposed to be a lived-out faith in Christ that makes a difference in our relationships with others. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your great love. I thank you for the Lord's Supper. I thank for, for what it pictures. I thank for the message it reveals. I thank you for the forgiveness that you give. And we thank you for the forgiveness that you have given because of our faith in Christ. We are unworthy, but we are loved. And Father, as we leave this premises today, I pray that as we are interacting with others in person or on the phone or on the internet or through social media, may we always extend grace and never have a heart of malice. We cannot do that in our own strength, Father. That is the spirit working in the lives of believers. That's why we call it kingdom righteousness. So, Father, may you be glorified as we seek to honor you in all ways, with all words and all thought, thoughts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.